Thanks, Annette. I forgot I was doing the scripture reading this morning. It's really long, so I didn't feel good about assigning it to somebody else. Welcome back, Nanette and Matt, from your trips. Good to, good to have you back. Um, scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16. Actually, as Nanette was talking about um, oof, uh, little kids singing, I don't know if um, this is a song that, that he learned, but Conrad has been singing all week, Thank You, God, for Spider Webs. Is that... <laughs> guess just a, I don't think that's a, fledgling teachers, you can tell me afterwards if you're teaching what kind of songs, I don't know. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, it's a, it's a lengthy one. You can read along if you have a, a Bible, you can open there. Um, Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money, so the employer called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me, I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah. I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the riches of heaven? If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The word of the Lord. I love this parable. I didn't start out the week loving it. I started out being confused by it. And I'm not sure I really got over that confusion. In fact, my confusion probably deepened as the week wore on. But I also, as my confusion grew, so did my love for this parable specifically my love, my admiration for the unjust manager. Now, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I'm supposed to love someone who's called the unjust manager, but I started to. Um, my admiration grew and grew. Jesus communicates a number of truths in the telling of this parable, and one that I think is worth our time this morning. There are many, but one that I think is worth our time is the unjust manager's decision to opt out of the system that props up the rich. Did you catch that? His decision to opt out of the system that props up the rich. 
Is it uncomfortable in here or is that just me? Okay. <clears throat> Luke 16, 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. He dies to that system, the system that props up the rich. He forfeits the wealth he stands to gain by continuing his employment in the service of the rich man, and he opts out of that system. He wants to make friends with the poor. Now, his motives, if you, if you were reading along with me and were able to follow, which I sympathize with you if you weren't because I, I couldn't grasp what was going on the first two, few times I read it, but his motives aren't pure. He's not opting out of this unjust system for the right reasons. His motives are selfish. He just wants a place to live when he's fired. He wants a couch to crash on after he loses his job. And by the way, he's, I mean, he's being fired. So to say that he's opting out is maybe a bit of a generous reading here. Um, he is being forced out. But nonetheless, he makes a good decision. No matter the decisions that led to his good decision, it was probably a series of bad decisions, of selfish decisions, of mismanaging wealth, of probably cheating his employer. Uh, if we get any indication of what his relationship to, his, uh, to the rich man was, was like, uh, it probably comes in what he does for his, those who owe the debt to the, to the rich man. He cuts down on, just with a stroke of a pen, says, oh, uh, cut that in half. Now, some commentators read pretty generously about the unjust manager. They say, and this might be true, it's a generous reading, that the unjust manager is cutting down on the debt load just to account for his commission that he is owed on the debt. So, maybe he's not so bad after all. He's forfeiting earthly wealth. He's forfeiting what he stands to gain from the debt that he's collecting. But that's a pretty generous reading. He's still selfish. Uh, he kind of backs into a good deed pretty much by accident. And so I, I love this character that Jesus gives us. Another thing I love about him is that he's honest about his shortcomings. In verse 3, the manager said to himself, what will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. Um, I say amen to, to both of those, I guess. <clears throat> Don't laugh at that. <laughs> so he visits those who owe a debt to his master, and he cuts down their debts. From 100 jugs of oil to 50, from 100 containers of wheat down to 80. He's a failure. Uh, he, he's about to lose everything. He's a little pitiful, would you agree? He's a little conniving. He's crafty. Uh, his motives are not exactly pure. But nonetheless, he opts out of this system. Again, kind of a generous reading there. Opts out of this system that perpetuates injustice, that props up the rich, that drags down the poor. Now, he does this almost in spite of himself, but still, he escapes from this system of exacting debts from the poor by making friends with them so that he can live with them after he, he's fired, after he loses his job. He opts out of the system of the world, a system that separates the debt collector from the indebted. He forfeits. 
He dies so that he can live again in a new way. In the parable, Jesus says it this way. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. I want to submit to you this morning that when we're baptized, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it at the time of our baptism or not, we're declaring in a similar way that we are opting out of unjust systems. Like the unjust manager, we're as good as dead, and we submit to this death so that we might be welcomed into new life. Sometimes we sort of back in to the waters of baptism by accident. Maybe that's some of your story here. We're proclaiming with the Apostle Paul, who says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And he describes the identity we receive in our baptism in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So like the unjust manager, in our baptism, we die to this world's systems of injustice when we enter the waters of baptism. Let me tell you some things, baptized Christians to whom I'm speaking, maybe not all of you, but many of you. Uh, Wes, you're, you were recently baptized. Let me tell you some things that I know about you. There may be some others. Anybody else who was baptized? I was gone a couple of weeks ago, sadly. <laughs> I missed the baptism service. Maybe just Wes is in here. <clears throat> Let me tell you some things I know about you. Whether you realize these things or not. You ready? Baptized Christians? Okay. In your baptism into God's family, like the unjust manager, you are choosing to identify with the disadvantaged. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And God dwells with the poor. It's a way to go. That, you've chosen that life. You've chosen to identify with the one who identifies with, dwells with the poor. Do you know that? Wes, did you know that? Oh, you didn't. Okay. Well, I wonder who taught your baptism class, Matt? <laughs> again and again in Scripture... We find this depiction of God dwelling with the poor. Uh, this is one whose life you, baptized Christian, are baptized into. So in our call to worship today, Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is exalted, yet he looks after the lowly. There's one. Uh, Psalm 113, verses 4 through 9. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above all the heavens. Amen. We're baptized into that life. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He, he, raises, he raises the poor from the dust. Mm. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Oh. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Yes, we identify with this one, who's high and holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, what is this? With him, oh, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Hmm. 
We also see this in the Magnificat, Mary's song, when the angel announces that Jesus is going to be born. She sings of God. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. This is who you are patterning your life after as a baptized believer. I don't know if that's good news or or maybe strikes a chord of bad news. Your life is hidden in the one who unites what the systems of this world insist on separating. As Paul says says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, uh, he has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. You're patterning your life after this one who brings together what the systems of this world say shouldn't exist together. You're identifying with one who insists upon inviting rich and poor alike to his table. So in Luke chapter 15, which is the setting for the parable today, we read this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So it's both poor and rich, both the sinners and the religious leaders. He's bringing these groups together at one table. This is the one that you're identifying with in your baptism. That's the life you live. So, while I'm offering this description of you to yourself, you might be patiently waiting and thank you for not interrupting me, to say, Austin, this doesn't sound like me. Uh, I am uh, a little bit conniving sometimes. Um, I do my best to follow Jesus. I believe in him. But I still sometimes, if I'm honest, participate in systems that you're claiming that I've opted out of. I'm a little selfish In fact, Austin, you're saying these words to me, okay? I've probably contributed to the systems that keep the rich and poor separate. I'm kind of doing the opposite of of what you're saying my baptism means. Yeah, I know. Me too. Me too. But the first step really is to get that out in the open, right? Don't you feel better now that you've said all of that to me? I feel better. Thank you for your honesty. In our baptism, we have opted out of the world's systems of injustice. Whether we knew it at the time of our baptism, Wes, who's not even in here anymore. Oh, yes, you are. Thank you. I missed you. Whether you knew it or or not, on August 21st, Wes, sorry, I'm picking on you. I didn't even warn you. Whether you knew it or not, on the day of your baptism, you were opting out of these systems. Whether you knew it or not, uh, whether you... Uh, have lived faithfully into that baptismal identity or not, it's still your identity. This is still the one with whom you have chosen to align your life. Like the unjust manager, in our baptism, we defected from the rich man's team, and we joined the one who dwells with the poor. We've died to that former manner of life, and now it's Christ who lives in us. But there is a problem. Uh, We still keep secrets, 
right? I mean, you've just confessed all of yours to me, so thank you, but we still keep secrets. We still keep things in the dark, especially about money and how we spend it, uh, whether or not we're faithful with it. As Jesus says at the conclusion of the parable, you cannot serve God and money, but we still try. We still try. Rather than leaning fully into our baptismal identity and rejoicing in the fact that we've died with Christ, we've been risen, we've risen with Christ, we cling to our former manner of life, and if that weren't enough, we hide the ways in which we do it. We hide it from God, we hide it from each other, sometimes we hide it even from ourselves. Uh, we're not fooling anybody, as it turns out, uh, least of all Jesus. Think about the things in our lives that we insist on covering up. I know, I'm forcing you to go there. Paul gives us a list in Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. All these things we like to hide. Sometimes we cover up these things out of shame. Sometimes we cover these things up with religious activity. Uh-oh, here we are sitting in church. Uh, turns out this isn't just a problem for, for you and me, but this has been a problem throughout history for God's people. Listen to what Amos says to the people of Israel. And Amos chapter 5 is a well-known prophecy from Amos. It says to the people of Israel, speaking the word of God, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, Kevin. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let, in, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In our baptism, we have chosen to identify with the God who dwells with the poor. We've opted out of unjust systems. But if we're not careful, even our gatherings together in God's name can be a part of covering up the ways that we still participate in systems of injustice. It's a hard word. The Old Testament text for today comes from Amos chapter 8, a few chapters later. In Amos 8, the cover-up is exposed by the prophet Amos. He prophesies against those who have, not, who have an internal monologue that they kind of keep quiet. They keep it secret. They keep it under wraps. They keep it covered up. They don't want it brought to light. And they may not even be aware that they think this way, but here's how Amos says they think. Amos chapter 8. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. And then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. Amos there is describing the thoughts of God's chosen people who insist on serving wealth instead of God. They insist on keeping secrets about their true allegiance to wealth and the oppression that it brings, perhaps hiding it even from themselves. 
rather than receiving God's gift of Sabbath, which should mean rest from oppression, they can't wait for the Sabbath to pass so they can get back to the real work of making money, growing their wealth, and benefiting from systems of injustice. So the problem that Jesus addresses in Luke chapter 16 in our parable for today, serving God and wealth, the dangers of that, that's not a new problem. This week, I asked uh, Heather Hardinger for her her thoughts on this passage in Amos 8. Heather's here this morning, so uh, she can dispute the quote, but uh, I I asked for her permission. So uh, in my mind, Heather is uniquely equipped to, to address some of the things that are addressed in this passage because of her professional experience, because of uh, her knowledge of the ways that policies affect poor folks in our own backyard. Um, so I, I asked her to kind of tell me what she sees in this passage for our neighborhood, for today, for Springfield. I don't know why I did that, but I, I did. The answer wasn't very easy to hear. Heather pointed out how poor people in Springfield are especially negatively affected in the areas of housing and employment. And she said something that has been bothering me all week. While some people engage in practices that keep the poor down and and know that they do it, uh, they know fully what they're doing, there are also those who do things without awareness of the oppression that they're bringing. And she said this, it's going to be on the screen. She said, the journey from righteousness to oppression may not always have clear markers or boundaries. So you and I, saved by grace, dead to our sins and alive in Christ, equipped for every good work, we're up against something invisible. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle isn't against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, baptized Christian, when we insist on keeping secrets, we're living in darkness. Even though we've been called to live in the light, we're we're living in darkness. We're participating further in these systems when we keep secrets. Secrets about sin, secrets about how we handle our money. We're feeding these powers we who, like the unjust managers, manager, has been, have been transferred in spite of ourselves into the kingdom of his glorious light, insist on still living, remaining in the domain of darkness. And I want to submit to you this morning that secrecy, hiddenness, anonymity, that they only make the problem worse. They only make the problem worse. And it's not until our cover-up is exposed, until injustice is brought to light, that we're free from the powerful systems that enslave us. We have to turn on the lights. Now, is this embarrassing? Yes. Is it scary? Yes. Can it be humiliating? Yeah. How do we turn the lights on? I I would submit to you uh, by truth-telling, confession, which requires deep relationship. I heard my dad say one time that truth travels best over the bridge of relationship. Truth travels best over the bridge of relationship. So truth-telling is a practice that we need to engage in. We need to spend time together regularly so that we've established those bridges across which truth can travel. We need to spend time together regularly. 
We do that as we gather around the table each week, as we meet together in this space each week. We proclaim our allegiance once again to the crucified and risen Lord whose life we now share through our baptism. Uh, I had Olivia create another piece of art for me. Um, She did a few weeks ago. It's hanging out in the lobby. Um, So she, at my request, again, I commissioned a piece of art. Uh, Adam, if you want to show that. This is um, a pictorial representation of the Christian year. So you may have noticed our our little pennant here in green. Uh, That represents uh, ordinary time, the season after Pentecost. So we've we've had this green pennant up for a number of weeks. I don't know how well you can see the colors there, but there are a number of green weeks, green marks toward the bottom. They all represent uh, the season after Pentecost, ordinary time. So up at the top there, there's, uh, there's dark blue. Dark blue is the season of Advent. So we go through Advent, four weeks of, of Advent. Uh, I can see some of you taking pictures. Olivia, I think we agreed on $5,000 is what you're charging for this. Okay. <clears throat> followed by Christmas, uh, followed by the season of Epiphany. The purple there is Lent. Uh, so this, for me, is a pictorial representation of all of the times that we get to meet together throughout the course of a year. So there are 52-ish marks here. I think we added one for Good Friday because we agreed that it needed some black. Um, But this is a representation of all of the times that we get to meet together in a year. And this, to me, makes visible some of those otherwise invisible boundary markers that would exist in that journey from righteousness to oppression. Does that make sense? Our meeting together, our opportunity to come together and to tell the truth, to stop keeping secrets, these are our opportunities each week. Now, am I saying that church attendance 52 plus weeks of the year is um, going to save the world? No, (laughs) no. But there's an environment created here, each of these little crosses, each of these little ticks, when we come together, that become those kind of boundary markers in this otherwise invisible slide from righteousness to oppression. To remind ourselves of whose we are, of who we identify with whose life we are baptized into, with whom we have died, and with whom we are raised to new life. I'm getting excited. I lost my place. That's about as Pentecostal as I'm going to get up here, so I hope you... So thanks, Olivia. You can leave that up there, Adam. It's so cool. I think there, there might be a warning here also in, in this uh, picture, uh, at least according to Amos, that even in our religious activity, maybe represented by these marks, uh, that our gathering together could also be what's covering up injustice. Again, that's a hard truth. Our gathering has the potential to be those very clear boundary markers between oppression and injustice. 
right? I mean, I hope so. I hope that's what we're doing here. I hope we're reminding each other of our baptism, of our identity, of the fact that we have opted out of the systems that prop up the rich and bring down the poor. We've, we've opted out of that. Our baptismal identity speaks a, a better word. We, we want to be there. But there is at least the possibility that each of these weeks we are adding another covering over injustice. And I, I don't want that to be the case. I don't think anybody here wants that to be the case. But let this serve as our reminder this morning of, of why we're doing what we're doing when we gather here. Because it really doesn't make, make a lot of sense, I guess, you know? It just really doesn't. There's cooler things you could be doing, presumably, uh, than like wrestling up your kids and, and getting them ready and um, trying to live into this countercultural way of life. And it's super hard. <laughs> but why are we doing this, right? Any, anyway, I think I'm about done. Let's, would you stand? And Kevin, would you come? Let's, let's join together around the table of our Lord. And just a, a practical word for those who have not um, been with us to share uh, communion. We make two lines uh, down the two center aisles here, and to come forward, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and you can receive the elements. Um, you can uh, take them back to your seat, receive them on your own. Um, but before we do so, and then we'll sing a song together, before we do so, I'd like to pray a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the new life that you have made possible for each of us. We thank you for our baptism that signals that we now identify with the one who dwells with the poor, who brings together what should not be brought together according to the logic of this world, we confess that it's confusing. We confess that we may have backed into it. We confess that we probably haven't lived it out faithfully. We confess that though we claim this identity, we act in ways that are, are, are just counter to it. And we want to bring that to the light this morning. I pray that you would strengthen relationships in this room so that we can tell the truth about things that we would otherwise keep silent not only to you in, in quiet places and quiet times through, through confession, but through confession one to another. Strengthen relationships so that we can tell the truth about really hard and sensitive things and so that we can meet you through others, the one who doesn't condemn us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus been baptized into you there's no condemnation help us to live into this reality and give us a sense for the otherwise invisible boundary markers that exist between oppression and righteousness help us to be attentive help us to be on our guard by your spirit amen
Would you join us at the table?